This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA alum Heather Bowden speaks with Scott Tu, founder and leader of the Center for Energy Efficiency and Sustainability at Ingersoll Rand. So Ingersoll Rand describes itself as a diversified manufacturer with market-leading brands serving customers in global commercial, industrial, and residential markets. Can you tell us some more about the company, its history, products, and services? I sure can, and I'm happy to uh, share some background with your audience. Uh, Ingersoll Rand is a diversified manufacturer, and I think the phrasing fits because we serve some some very large uh, market segments, things like the built environment, for instance, with our with our brands like Train Air Conditioning, which serves both the commercial and residential building market. We also have brands like Thermal King, which is the largest refrigerated transport brand in the world. This is the brand that helps you have fresh fruits and fresh vegetables year-round. It's our refrigerated solutions that ensure that fresh food makes it to consumers around the world. We also have an electric vehicle brand called Club Car, which is off-road vehicles for resorts, college campuses, athletic facilities, and the like. And then lastly, of our major brands is our legacy brand, Ingersoll Rand. Ingersoll Rand brand is a a brand of uh, compressed air tools and systems that that serve a host of markets, including things like the automotive market, um, the bottled water and soda market. So wherever you see bubbles in water, Ingersoll Rand probably brings that to you. Uh, Interestingly, that's our legacy brand 140 plus years ago. Ingersoll Rand invented things like the rock drill, which transformed the mining industry and allowed for more efficient production of the materials that were used to herald the industrial age. And so we have a a rich legacy of addressing global challenges from the industrial age until the challenges that we're facing today. Um, Yeah, you guys have been around for just about forever. and I think you guys have been also in the S&P for longer than anybody. Um, well, I think we're one of the top uh, 15 or so. I'm not sure about the length. It may be in the top 10 now. It's like 100, certainly well over 100 years. Next year, I think, marks our 150th year in business. Wow, that's phenomenal. Do you guys have any plans to celebrate? <laughs> that I'm not sure about. I think that the I think it was uh, 2019 will mark uh, 150 years. If not, we're very close. We're like at 148 or so years today. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, not only are you a leader in all of these products and services, but you also are a leader in sustainability. So you personally founded the Center for Energy Efficiency and Sustainability in 2010. And I was wondering, can you tell us its founding story and how the industry and your role has changed and evolved since then? Sure. I think about 10 years ago, the company was at a at an inflection point with a new leader. Mike Lamock was named CEO and, and chairman at that time. And I think the board and Mike had lots of ideas about the company's future and a future strategy. And part of that strategy 
uh, along with uh, some other exciting things around company culture and integrating businesses and becoming a more lean manufacturing company was also adoption of sustainability as a as a lever to provide several benefits, actually three. Uh, I think it's the three deliverables that sustainability provides for all companies. The first is uh, productivity. You know, many companies use sustainability as a lens to help them become more efficient, especially if they're manufacturing companies. The second usefulness for sustainability is to help you identify risk, areas of risk within your company. That could be things like uh, climate-related risk, could be labor-related risk. There could be there are several elements of risk that many companies use sustainability to help them identify pathways to solve the risk-related issues. And then thirdly, Mike and the team who were beginning to unveil a strategy for the company was to to find a way to use sustainability as a growth opportunity to help help identify large problems, things like urbanization, things like climate change, things like resource uh, restraints. You find those big issues and then you sort of reposition the company uh, to help develop, innovate around solutions for those issues that lead to growth opportunities. And so I think the I think the best companies out there are using sustainability for all three of those areas. And so we've been doing that now for the last 10 years through the work of the group that you mentioned, the Center for Energy Efficiency and Sustainability. Um, man, we could take it in a lot of different directions, but how about we start with greenhouse gas footprint, Full Rand's global climate commitment. You guys committed to a 35% reduction of the greenhouse gases footprint from your own operations by 2020 to deliver on this goal, the company targeted 10% increase in efficiency from the 2013 baseline. And you've achieved the goal two years ahead of schedule in April, 2018. Can you tell us more about this climate commitment and how you achieve these results? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm excited to talk about the climate commitment for several reasons. Uh, the first though, I wanna, I need to mention that our approach around the climate commitment was around identifying where the big opportunities were within our own footprint. And so our footprint as a company, uh, our work has been across the entire value stream. So we have been considering our carbon-related footprint from suppliers and our own manufacturing to what happens when we release a product to a customer. One thing you should realize is that our products last a long time for those who have some of those Ingersoll RAND products that I mentioned, like train air conditioning or the Ingersoll RAND compressed air systems or tools, or maybe, you, maybe you've seen our club car brand, those products last a long time. These are not consumer-related products that have a short shelf life. Our products last sometimes 20 years with a customer. And so the big opportunities were around not only our manufacturing footprint, which is where a lot of companies focus, but also around what happens when we leave a product at our system with a customer. That represents actually, which some of us would call scope three emissions, that represents for us the largest opportunity for savings and the climate impacts. And so that's where we focus. And as you mentioned, our climate commitment was really a three-part commitment. The first part was about our manufacturing, which you mentioned. Uh, it was around reducing greenhouse gas footprint of our own operations. Many companies have a commitment like this. I think ours was significant. It was a 35% reduction of the greenhouse gas footprint with a 2013 baseline. 
What's not said there typically is that we had just achieved a 25% reduction in the year leading up to 2013. So this is on top of that significant improvement. So that's the operations piece. We did that through reducing emissions by making, our, making sure our production facilities were more efficient. Uh, some of those things were small steps than any company can take, like rapid rise doors, which are more efficient to changing out large energy consuming systems, such as maybe HVAC systems. The second piece of our commitment dealt with the product side, which is really exciting. Not many companies have set a bold climate commitment related to reducing the greenhouse gas footprint of their products. And we did that, and that commitment was a 50% reduction in the greenhouse gas refrigerant footprint of our products. Also by 2020, we're well on our way to achieving that one. It's not completed yet, but as you mentioned, the operational commitment of 35%, we did achieve two years early. Just uh, sometimes things start working and there's a momentum that's gained inside of a company that, that can help engage employees, can drive innovation, and that's the exciting thing is you can actually achieve more than you thought was possible early, which was our case with the operations piece. I'm also excited about the product piece for another reason. The 50% commitment on the product side also was so significant that it helped change the conversation around the regulatory schemes that are needed to introduce new products into a marketplace. Uh, we make products that are regulated oftentimes by things like building codes, and so you can't sell products unless building codes allow you to. And so not only were we saying that we were committing to making innovative products and bringing them to market, but we also signaled to regulators that we needed them to change, begin work on changing the regulations to allow those products in the marketplace because of their enhanced efficiency or because of their low climate impacts. And so we've been working on that too. So sometimes you set targets that are so bold that it drives other actions in the marketplace, which is really exciting. The third piece of our commitment was around an investment fund. We set aside $500 million to research and develop pathways uh, for low greenhouse gas emissions solutions that did not exist on the day we made the commitment. We realized that we had to do that in partnership with others. And so that's the threefold commitment. I think it was bold. It still remains a, a leading climate commitment for, for any company, but in particular for an industrial company. We're very proud of it. I think one of the most challenging things around sustainability is helping not only um, folks within the company, but suppliers, for example, and customers to think long-term. Yeah. So when companies tell you that energy efficiency is expensive, but they're only saying that because they're looking at it from a short-term perspective, what are some of the things, like the specific things, maybe key phrases or whatnot that might help the audience? Um, what, what do you say to them and how do you help them think long-term? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things I would say to that. One is, is that I firmly believe that uh, targets and bold goals drive actions. And so first, my, my first question typically is, do you have a target that you're aiming for? Do you have a goal? If that's the case, then I think that that's an important part of the conversation. It's an important part of how you evaluate what to go do, which brings me to my second point. I think that the myriad things that companies can focus on, and it, it changes by the company, any company or every company should focus on what matters most to them, meaning where's the way for you to have the biggest impact? And for 
many companies, it's around efficiency because efficiency gives you sort of a twofer. You get a bottom line impact of cost savings. You also typically get uh, several other benefits. And some of those may be to help you achieve an efficiency target or a greenhouse gas reduction. It may get you a reputational bump, meaning you uh, move ahead of your peers because you become more efficient. I think it creates a, uh, an engagement moment for employees who sense that their company is, is deeply committed. And I think sustainability many times or some of these issues are very personal with people, and so it's good for employees to see that their leadership and their own company's investing, sort of putting your money where your mouth is. And so I think there's a lot of benefits, and I, I, the whole short-term versus long-term issue, I think, I think there's wins on both sides of, the, of that issue. So I'm so curious. Uh, what, in, what initially inspired you to get into sustainability? I, I know that you have degrees in both biology <laughs> and ecology. Right. Was it that, or was it something even earlier, or what was it that got you inspired? Okay, well, the early story is I grew up on a farm, commercial produce farm in South Alabama, and so I understood the, or the importance from a very early, my early days of, of protecting and being careful about the earth and uh, being careful about waste. Um, I'm from, I'm an eighth generation. The seven before me were all farmers, and although I piddle in my backyard with a small raised garden. It's nothing like seven generations before me, but that respect for for nature and maybe a disdain for waste was cemented at an early age. Fast forward to first uh, jobs in my career were around environmental policy, around impacts that companies can make when they change their behavior and or change their focus on the future. And so I worked early on on ecological issues. I worked for the past uh, 13 years with Ingersoll Rand and the train brands around environmental policies, such as international treaties like Kyoto and the Mount Montreal Protocol, which guide international rules around refrigerants. And refrigerants are an important raw material for Ingersoll Rand. That's what you use in a cooling system, like a train air conditioning system, to deliver the cooling solution. And so one of our raw materials happens to be a regulated greenhouse gas. And so I'm, I've always been interested in how companies go about achieving opportunities in the marketplace and at the same time trying to reduce their environmental impacts. And so that's sort of the whole story around my, my love for this area. And it's just been a delight over the last several years to do this for a, a company that can bring solutions to scale to the market and you get to see huge impacts. Totally. I, uh, I read a story about how you guys actually implemented a rain manufacturing model that reminds yeah. me from a consumer perspective about modular phone design mm -hmm. and how you guys kind of applied that to an air conditioning unit and swapped out the compressor so that yeah. you could get like another 25 years. Yeah, those compressors a... last a long time. And uh, we do have a remanufacturing center. Uh, one's just for compressors. We remanufacture other things as well. But the compressor piece, of course, it's sort of a heart transplant, though, because the compressor is the heart of a, a system like that. And we that business continues to increase. There's still a, there's a huge pull for remanufacturing. It's strange for me to think about us having a, a system. Uh, recently, I was at our reman facility, and they were remanufacturing a compressor from a hotel in Portland, Oregon. And I was asking, why? What's, what's the big deal with the hotel? And this compressor had been in service for 30-plus years, the system in this hotel. But the hotel was a historic building now, 
and had um, sort of complicated egress into the systems. And so the best opportunity was to maintain the historic status of the hotel, not to have to deconstruct doorways and tear out uh, entrances, was to just take pieces of the system out, remanufacture them, and the remanufacturing will ensure another 25, 30 years. So this hotel can have a, a single system that's as efficient as anything purchased today, and it's all through a remanufacturing model. I think that's so exciting for for buildings of all size. There's a new life, and it's just sort of like a heart transplant for a person. Totally. Uh, just looking at the remanufacturing process as a business model, um, it kind of reminds me of how we have this upcoming, like we're already in this worker shortage, um, like just from a, being able to do things like remanufacturing, re for example. And uh, a lot of people are looking at automation, um, machine learning and whatnot. I recently saw an interview with um, your CEO, Mike Lamock, um, where he was talking about how Ingersoll Rand is constantly thinking about how to do more work with less people every day and that this aligns with the increased automation and worker shortages that are only going to get worse mm. if we don't start doing widespread vocational training. And I was wondering, how do you see automation and maybe even machine learning through a sustainability lens? That's an interesting question. So, you know, I think sustainability, I mentioned earlier that one of the great facets of sustainability is it does help a company think differently about productivity, and productivity comes to us in many ways. One is just through wasting less. So you identify areas of waste, and you try to minimize those or eliminate them. The second, though, is just efficiency overall, or what some people call productivity, meaning that you are doing more with less. An example is companies that can decouple their energy use from their revenues or from the number of things that they manufacture. And we've been successful at doing that meaning that we use less energy than in the past to make even more products than we made in the past. That's sort of like a, that's like the sort of the holy grail of sustainability at a manufacturing side is to decouple energy use from, from revenues or from number of items made. And many times you do those things by automating processes. Sometimes you do it by increasing capabilities of the workforce. We have a design for sustainability training for our engineers and for procurement leaders to help them be more capable about thinking about waste differently, about being more productive. And so, you know, I think that uh, automation is sort of an outgrowth of this search for more productivity and more efficiency. And I think that there's more wins on that side than there's, there are downsides. And so I'm excited about the possibilities where we're seeing it creep into every facet of um, manufacturing and of the um, marketplace, and so not sure where it's headed, but I think it's ex it's exciting for us all. Um, one of the one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about as it relates to that is international manufacturing facilities. Mm -hmm. I know that you guys have manufacturing and assembly operations in 51 countries around the world, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering what some of the progress around sustainability that you've made at those facilities overseas. Oh, that's a great question, it, and it's also a fair question. I think some companies might do it a bit differently than, than we do. However, a couple of things I should mention is that we are a global company with a global footprint, 
And many times our footprint has been adjusted so that we have an in-region manufacturing footprint, as we call it, which means that we try to have a manufacturing footprint within a region that serves that region. So in China, for instance, we try, we try to have a manufacturing levels that would meet the demands of China or Asia Pacific, and we would do the same in North America. So that's number one about the approach. But number two is we don't change our approach to sustainability around the world. It's the same. So it's not unique in one region over another. So in other words, we have we're on a hunt for the same efficiency levels in Asia Pacific or in Europe as we would be on in North America, vice versa. And by the way, there are great learnings and things happening in in our factories in in Asia Pacific that we use as best practices for facilities in North America. And we have a you know a great global team that is very eager to share what works for their facilities. We use sort of a best case scenario of capturing stormwater runoff in our Galway, Ireland facility. That model is a model for other facilities to increase their stormwater capture so that it can be used as gray water in facilities, as an example. We are <clears throat> doing some things in uh, India that we can share with offices in Europe. And so our learnings in our global footprint are not specific to a region. We're sharing those across the footprint. Um, I have a bit of a, a speculative question. Um, can you, why, why isn't everyone following suit? Like, why do you think there are still laggards around sustainability? So the question is about why others might be slow to the, slow to do more? Yeah, like why, why isn't everyone jumping on the Ingrid Bullrand sustainability bandwagon? <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. I can't speak for other companies. I can tell you that I think there's four things that are that work that could work for any company of any size. One is you got to focus on what matters to your company. That's what we were doing. Greenhouse gas is our most material issue, and um, so that's that's the one that everyone in the company understands. We know that it's our biggest issue, the biggest thing to go solve, and so we ask our employees at all levels to help think through what they can personally do as well as what the company overall can do. Secondly, I think any company can set a bold goal, can set a target, and I think that's an important step, no matter if we're talking about a small, medium, or large company. Third, I think it's really important not to leave out areas of your value stream. You know, some companies seem to just want to focus on their manufacturing footprint or their efficiency at the manufacturing level, but I think any company not only industrials, but consumer companies that should be focusing across the entire value stream. We should be considering the impact of our suppliers. We should be considering the impact of your products once they reach the customer. And then the fourth piece that I think any company can do is think through how their current set of products can be made better. So how can you make them more efficient? How can you make them with less waste? Um, how can you uh, increase uh, their more sustainable packaging. There's a host of areas around your current products. So uh, that, that there's just great opportunities there. And so if those seem to be, to me, that like a minimum or a core set of actions that any company can take. And so I, I don't buy into the fact that some companies just don't see a way to make a difference just because I think any company can, using those four steps, can make a difference. 
That's awesome. I think that um, the buy-in of the employees around sustainability is just so tremendous, um, even just in terms of uh, incentivizing employees to care more about the company itself um, and what you guys I agree. are up to. Yeah, two things. The one you just mentioned where there's this like this, I think there's a, I think there's an increased favorability of the company and we've measured that and we've seen it. So it's not just a, a feeling. So I think you do get that favorability increase with employees. Secondly is that one of the things that really has surprised us through the years has been the level of engagement and innovation. Employees have great ideas and I think sustainability gives them sort of a platform to bring those ideas forward and say, hey, have we thought about this? Have we thought about this in terms of reducing waste? Have we tried this with our products? And so have, sustainability can serve as, as a great platform to hear employees' innovative ideas. What's next for um, the Center for mm. Energy Efficiency and Sustainability? Like, what are you guys working on right now? We're working on the 2030 target. So this is an exciting time. Next year, we will be winding down our 2020 sustainability targets, which were integrated across the value stream. And we've been working most of this year on what's next. What does the company, what will the company look like and feel like in 2030? So we're considering how the world might change, what the big issues are that we can help solve, and then we'll, we will weave those into a new set of targets that we'll be announcing sometime next year, probably mid-year. And that will, I think that'll help maybe change the conversation to uh, what the next level of leadership is for any company. So that's exciting to me. That's awesome. We're, I mean, I know we're really looking forward to hearing that, especially again, being able to point to it yeah. um, as an example. Um, what do you have any, do you have any advice just for like folks leading sustainability initiatives within large, small other brands, especially, um, I think you guys have six folks in your team. Um, what advice do you have for people that have small teams like yours? Well, I, I, I mentioned some of those things earlier. I think it's really important for a team of any size and a company of any size to focus on what matters most, to set a target sort of as a north star. And then I think that uh, you should you should work across the entire value stream because there's great potential in every facet of it. And so it works for all companies. It works for all size teams as well. Transparency is really important. Transparency meaning if you set a target, make sure it's public. I think holding ourselves up to disclosure and transparency is important because it it helps people outside the company compare sort of apples to apples with you among others. It helps uh, important stakeholder groups understand how committed you really are, and I think internally it drives uh, innovation and engagement. So those are my tips for any company. It's the same steps that we've taken as a company, and I think they work for others. Yeah, I think that um, the transparency point, uh, at least what I've seen, it's freaked out a lot of companies like, oh, well, if we say if we say we're going to do that, we're on the hook for it. And um, it's yeah. definitely a fine balance between what is realistic, but how can we really push ourselves to get there? Yeah, I mean, I love stretch um, goals. I think if you stretch yourself, what if you only get 60% of the way there? It's probably a lot more than you were thinking in the very beginning. So you still come out of head and so does the planet and the people. So I'm, uh, I'm all for stretch goals. 
Awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Scott, for speaking. Thank you. It was great to be with you. Thanks for all the questions and for the nice conversation. Learn more about the Center for Energy Efficiency and Sustainability by visiting company.ingersollrand.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, April 19th. We'll be speaking with Crystal Dreisbach, Executive Director and Founder of Don't Waste Durham. For our complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. BARD MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.